I would like to talk about this evening is meeting Mara. And in the talk this evening I'd like to draw quite largely upon the story of the life of Siddhartha, the Buddha. Mostly we know the Buddha through pictures and images. And he often appears to us probably as a rather glamorous, noble, an extremely abstract figure who we're fairly sure did exist and also can probably feel some certainty that he experienced some very powerful form of awakening, that he experienced some very powerful and profound insight which transformed not, his own, not only his own life and time but a transformation, of course, which has continued for hundreds of years. However, it is not always so easy to see Siddhartha as more than a historical symbol or a historical figure whose awakening and whose journey may really seem to have very little to do with our own story and with our own journey. And what I'd like to look at in the talk this evening are some of the parallel threads that join our story and that join our journey to the story and to the journey of Siddhartha's own great journey and the way in which his journey and his awakening also reveals the steps and the process and the understandings that we go through in our own journey and in our own awakening. We are all obviously very different from one another. We have different stories and we have different histories. We have different conditioning. We come from different cultures. We have different backgrounds. And of course this all gives to each one of us as an individual different dreams and aspirations, different things that we yearn for, some different things that we want to let go of. And in many ways, it's true that there is no standard map in meditation, no standard map with fixed signposts that we will all pass by, no standard map with standard experiences that we will all undergo in a progressive or in a predictable way. For each one of us, our journey will be rooted in our own stories. Our understanding and our insight will be rooted in our own uniqueness. And yet even as we acknowledge that uniqueness, if we have a look into our neighbor's journey and into our neighbor's story, which we may very well feel that we would rather do than look at our own, we would see that there are some very fundamental universal principles that unfold in meditation. That as there are some very fundamental and universal dynamics that are part of every spiritual journey. And sometimes just looking at the story and the journey of someone like Siddhartha 
can help us to see our own challenges in a perhaps deeper and more profound context. The historical story of Siddhartha, you're probably all familiar with, that he lived what was in India at that time a very noble, princely, royal kind of life, which was probably just middle class by our standards. But amidst this life of luxury and the relative freedom that luxury and ease in one's outer life does bring, Siddhartha had a profound vision of possibilities, an intuitive vision was not borne out, it was not proven by any facts, by any examples even that he'd met, but an, an intuitive vision that there was a truth, a reality, an awakening, a way of seeing or being in this world that really was beyond birth and death, that was beyond sickness and aging. And he had a vision of an awakening, of a way of being in the world and within himself, where there would be true liberation. Not the freedom of being able to have what I want and not have what I don't want. Not the freedom of being able to avoid what is unpleasant and to pursue the pleasant not the freedom of being able to manipulate and modify and mold one's outer environment to suit one's likes and dislikes, but a quality of inner freedom, a freedom of consciousness that would be truly liberating. The start of Siddhartha's journey was not inspired really by anything very special. Although it's very easy to glamorize his life and his journey, and it happens all the time, the start of his journey was rooted in the story of life, the story of existence, the story of life and existence that is as true for us as it was true for him. His journey was inspired simply by what he saw around him. The yes, the body was a very temporary abode, and not a predictable one. But the world was a very unpredictable place to be beyond our control. That there are such things as sickness and as aging. That there are realities such as birth and death was nothing really particularly special. It was awakening to what those basic life actualities mean for us as an individual. That is this what our lives are about? The question he asked was, was this what his life was about? A temporary visit here? A life where success may be defined by the ability to pursue pleasure and to avoid pain. Buddha saw this and his journey also, his story and his life experience also included seeing an example of renunciation, an example of letting go, 
a simple exposure and encounter with one person who was endeavouring to lead a life which was not bounded by pleasure and pain, by sickness and by birth and death. And that really was the beginning of Siddhartha's journey. And like him, we have our own stories which are really not so dissimilar. And we also have moments we have all had moments in our own stories which have begun and which have inspired us to take the first step on our own journey. Sometimes those moments have not even been consciously stored. But events in our lives, simple events in our lives, simple encounters in our lives, have obviously started a process within us of looking for something which is more profound, which is deeper than just a superficial encounter with existence. Led us to moments in our own stories, have led us for to seek for ways to understand both pain and its and its end. Sometimes those moments have been for us also very powerful moments of intuition that awaken with us our own sense of possibility. This journey that you are on, this journey that we are all on, is not a journey that is possible without that sense of possibility. If we did not trust, did not have an intuition, that on some level it is possible for us not to just oscillate between pain and pleasure. That it's, if we didn't have an intuition, that it was possible for us to go beyond the limitations of conditioning. If we did not have a sense that it was possible for us to live as conscious, as awake, as compassionate human beings, there would hardly be the energy to continue and to persevere in this journey that we've begun. Sometimes the moments that have begun our own journeys have been very unpredictable moments in our lives, ones that we haven't even welcomed. Sometimes our journeys have begun by moments of pain, and sometimes our journeys have their roots also in moments of joy. We may have encounters, very direct and very unsettling encounters with loss. Loss of people we love, loss of people we care for, loss of prestige, loss of security, loss of relationships. And these losses that each one of us encounters in our lives, of course, has an effect upon our own hearts of pain and of grief. And in the pain and grief that is brought about by loss, there is also a sense that becomes clearer to us of the utter unreliability of the world that we live in, of our utter and deep inability to control the unfoldment of that world. Those moments of loss, of course, can touch our hearts extraordinarily deeply and lead us to ask, what are our lives about? 
What is our existence about? What does it mean to be a human being? What does it mean to live in this world in a conscious way? We have moments where we experience that the order of our world and our capacity to control it disintegrates. We may may fail to meet a goal that we aspire to. We may lose a sense of identity. We may lose a sense of, or we may acknowledge a sense of the limitations of our own minds to order the world around us. These moments, too, could be deeply disturbing. They can leave us feeling bereft, feeling disappointed, feeling disillusioned. And we know at times, in those times in our life, when we experience pain, when we experience loss, when we experience disappointment or disillusionment, we basically have only a few options available to us. One of them is, of course, that we can sink into despair, into depression, into feeling that it is totally hopeless, that we are totally hopeless, that it is empty of meaning. Another option is, of course, to have a sense, a deep sense, that there is always the possibility of new beginnings that the very ending of something, of anything in our lives, inwardly or outwardly, offers to us the possibility of the beginning of something else. And there's a certain freedom in that moment of transition. There's a certain freedom that's available to us in those moments of change. That those moments of change when we don't perceive sameness, when we don't perceive predictability, those moments actually can be extraordinarily liberating. They give us the opportunity to question, to look anew at who we are, at where we're going, at where our energy is committed, at where our attention is given to. They give us a sense that it may be possible for us to live differently to see and to feel more deeply and profoundly. Sometimes our moments of inspiration that begin us in this path are not moments of pain, but are rooted in moments of joy. We experience moments in nature, moments with other people, moments at times alone, as children, as adults. Moments that seem touched with an incredible sense of mystery, of stillness, of peace. Moments where we experience a profound sense of oneness and of harmony within ourselves and with all things. And those moments of connectedness have a powerful awakening effect within us. They lead us to question whether those moments have to be just random, unpredictable experiences. They lead us to question whether joy and peace, whether connectedness, have to be experiences that just happen to us, if we're fortunate, or if we're lucky, or if we're in the right place at the right time, or have the right karma. They lead us to question whether it is possible for us to actually be in this world and to be in ourselves 
to be with others and to be alone and never really ever to be disconnected from those qualities of peace and compassion, of oneness and of harmony. There is, of course, time when we do respond to disintegration and disorder by desperately trying to re-establish control and order. But more often, our eyes are opened. And more often, our hearts are opened by the moments in our lives that touch us deeply. Our sense of questioning, our sense of inquiry is inspired. And when our minds and when our hearts are opened, there's a yearning not so much to return to what we know to what is secure to what is familiar or to what is predictable for us but rather I feel that very openness awakens or can awaken within us a yearning instead to explore our own possibilities to explore the horizons of our own lives and our own consciousness That interest, that sense of inquiry, inspires a willingness to begin anew, to let go of the familiar, to let go of what we know. Because although we're aware that there's ease and security and seemingly a protection from fear, in what we know and it is what and what is familiar to us. We also know that in those very boundaries is where we find limitation. The willingness to step out of habit, the willingness to step out of those boundaries, which is often a willingness that brings us to retreat. It's a willingness that brings us to sit, to walk, to connect with silence to be alone. That willingness to let go is a very profound and deep level of renunciation. It has its parallels in the story of Siddhartha's renunciation. Every moment that we sit in meditation, every moment that we begin a walking period or a sitting with an open heart and with an open mind and with a willingness to connect anew, we actually enter unfamiliar territory. We enter into a time and a space and a territory where really there are no guarantees, there is no certainty. Bringing that open heart and bringing that open mind and bringing that willingness to let go, of course, into every city and into every walking is one of our major challenges. It's not always easy for us. It is always more comforting to stay with what is familiar. It's not an easy transition to make. And in the beginning of meditation, and often very far from the beginning of meditation, we encounter obstacles and difficulties that seem to prevent us from having that open heart and from having that open mind. We experience doubt, we experience fear, 
we experience self-doubt. And these feelings often seem to have the power to divert us and to sidetrack us. In the story of Siddhartha, if you know it, he spent basically the first six years of his practice in a constant state of struggle and pain and conflict. Spent the first six years of his practice essentially learning what it means to be in that time by those standards an ascetic. Basically spent the time starving and abusing and punishing his body and his mind in the belief that abuse and punishment and control was the most direct way to overcome ego, was the most direct way to overcome self. And the vehicles, Siddhartha basically employed, were the vehicles of willpower, of suppression, of self-denial, of control. And it took him six years to wake up to the fact, basically, that the practice of control leads to the perfection of control. And six years to wake up to the fact that the practice of self-negation leads to the perfection of self-negation. And in many ways, I feel that we can be actually really rather grateful to Siddhartha because he spent all that time proving and exploring that this really was quite helpless and perhaps relieves us of the need to follow the same avenues of control and endurance and willpower. But this is, I mean, obviously we don't sit here mortifying our flesh and no one has yet got to the point where they can touch their backbone through pressing on their belly button. However, it's not so easy for us to let go of more subtle levels of mortification and more subtle belief systems that I am somehow going to overcome I. That I, through my willpower and through my control, are somehow going to subdue this nuisance of a self that somehow keeps popping up and obstructing us in our journey. We have a culture and the rules and the ethics of our culture that most of us have our roots in, they tell us, our background tells us, that struggle and control and willpower bring desired results. Isn't that true? If you work hard enough, you'll get where you want to go. If you want to succeed, you have to use a lot of self-assertion. You have to overcome your doubts, your imperfections, and at least if you can't overcome them, you have to hide them. Those rules, which very much govern success and ambition, in our outer world, they simply don't apply here. They don't work. And that's not always easy for us to accept. It's like we have to so many times keep following those same avenues, like sitting down and banging our heads on a wall, and after the 50th or the 80th time, we say, that hurts. But sometimes we can only learn that through our own experience, not through the story of Siddhartha, not through the story of somebody else telling us. 
The biggest renunciation that most of us make in our meditation is the renunciation of habitual strategies. Our strategies for ordering our world and our strategies for ordering our minds. Our strategies for ordering our experience and our strategies for ordering and controlling the present moment. For most of us, this is the most major renunciation we will ever make and ever need to make in meditation. Our strategies of controlling, of forcing and manipulation and the belief, this most basic belief that I, through my willpower, through my effort, through my success, through my refinement as a meditator, that I am going to bring about liberation. There are aspects, many aspects in Siddhartha's story that have parallels in our own. One of the aspects of Siddhartha's story that I very much like to call upon is his encounter with Mara. Mara is a symbol, it's an archetypal symbol. You've probably all seen perhaps pictures of Mara as kind of a monster. Mara is an archetypal symbol of delusion and ignorance. Of all the, an archetypal symbol of all the patterns and the forces of conditioning, the forces of delusion, that distract us in our own journey, that lead us to doubt the authenticity of our own quest or, the pos- or, or our own possibilities. Mara is a symbol of the most powerful forces of mind and conditioning that undermine us in our journey, that lead us into struggle, into conflict, and into pain and into division. In the Buddha story, it said that it said that Mara shadowed the Buddha, shadowed Siddhartha throughout his journey, throughout the beginning, throughout the middle, in a number of different disguises and wearing a variety of different faces. And on the eve of his awakening, of Siddhartha's awakening, that Mara gathered together his most powerful forces for our last stand battle with Siddhartha. And I'd like just to read to you Joseph Campbell's account of this last stand battle because Joseph Campbell says things so well and his rather graphic description of Mara. The Bodhisattva placed himself with a firm resolve beneath the Bodhi tree and was straight away approached by Mara. The dangerous god appeared mounted on an elephant and carrying weapons in his thousand hands. He was surrounded by his army, which extended twelve leagues before him, twelve to the right, twelve to the left, and in the rear as far as the confines of the world, it was nine leagues high. The protecting deities of the universe took flight, but the future Buddha remained unmoved beneath the tree, and Maya assailed him. And the story goes on to describe the ways in which Siddhartha was attacked and the forces within Siddhartha that Maya attempted to evoke. First was fear, 
Siddhartha was attacked by pain and by darkness. And in the story, picture of Mara throwing thousands of missiles into Siddhartha's body. But the missiles were transformed into celestial flowers and ointment by the power of Siddhartha's wisdom and compassion. Then loneliness, craving, yearning, and lust were presented and called forth from within Siddhartha. But Siddhartha was undisturbed. Then Mara finally challenged Siddhartha's right to be sitting beneath a Bodhi tree. He mocked him. He jeered at Siddhartha. He said, what gives you the right to sit there? What gives you the right to meditate? What gives you the right to think that you are worthy of this quest? What gives you the right to believe that there is anything that can be awakened to? Mara asked Siddhartha, what gave Siddhartha the authority to call himself a seeker or to believe that there was such a thing as enlightenment? And Siddhartha's answer was silence. Siddhartha's answer was only to reach forth with the fingers of his hand and to touch his fingers to the earth before him. And to say in that gesture to Mara that the world, the universe, is my authority to call myself a seeker. That my very presence, my very wakefulness, is all the authority that is needed. And in touching the ground, the earth before him, Siddhartha bid the goddess earth to bear witness to his right to be sitting where he was. And she did with a hundred, a thousand, a hundred thousand roars, so that the elephant of Mara fell to its knees. And its army was dispersed, and the gods of all the worlds scattered gardens. In our own journeys, we meet Mara again and again. Not the mythical army of Mara, but we encounter powerful forces within ourselves that lead us into darkness and pain. We encounter boredom, and we doubt the worth of what we're doing. We encounter uncertainty and doubt that lead us to ask whether there is such a thing as liberation and whether it is possible for us. We meet ill will and we meet judgment. They lead us to be convinced even more of our own unworthiness. That there is something amiss within us that blinds us to our own possibilities, loving kindness and compassion. We meet anger and we meet rage. At times it seems to exile us from any quality of oneness, any quality of connectedness. We make sloth, and when we're not floundering in sloth, at times we seem to be floundering in praise and pride in our accomplishments. And sometimes we seem to know Mara often in our own past, more by its presence than by its absence. And at times those forces of Mara inwardly can seem rather endless and bottomless, as if we have some kind of 
bottomless pit within ourselves filled with demons. As we deepen in meditation, many of the more surface appearances of those forces seems to pass away. We don't feel so bothered by agitation or by dullness. But it often does seem, too, that as the power of our meditation sweeps away the more superficial distractions we encounter, that instead we encounter even more powerful forces of conditioning within ourselves. We meet fear, fear of losing ourselves, fear of extinction as an individual. And we meet the power of holding that accompanies fear, the grasping onto anything, thoughts, feelings, memories, plans, grasping onto anything as a kind of antidote to emptiness. And we meet deep, powerful forces of doubt. Doubt in our own path. Doubt in our own wisdom. And doubt in our own capacity to see. It's not uncommon for a person to begin a retreat feeling that they're a reasonably sane, rational human being, fairly nice. Only after some days to feel convinced that underneath that superficial niceness there lurks this horrible, raging person. When you wake up in the morning remembering a dream of throttling your roommate, and on one level, a voice is saying to you, I'm not really like that. Another voice is saying, well, what if I am? Perhaps this is just being uncovered. What is happening, the good news, of course, is that meditation does not turn us into monsters. Rather, what happens in the practice is that as we sit, much of our armor falls away, much of our defenses have much less power to protect us. And so different tendencies and different patterns and different forms of conditioning surface in ways in which we're acutely aware of them. What we have to restrain ourselves from is then making detailed lists of improvement. Because this is the great temptation. As patterns and forces of conditioning emerge, we feel so disturbed by them. We feel so much that we would like to divorce ourselves from them that the antidote to these patterns and forces of conditioning seems to be improvement, modification, manipulation, striving to become someone else. And this is where I feel there is a great virtue in restraint. Because the moment that we begin to make those lists, we are beginning the very same dance of I will become. I will, who will become? And we almost can create this very grand picture within ourselves of becoming that through our effort, through our will, through our struggle, through getting rid of this and becoming more of that, that we will get nicer and better, holier, more saintly, until eventually I will become enlightened. This grand picture is nonsense. 
it is truly insubstantial. I will not become enlightened. The moment that we can say that to ourselves and truly accept it, it's a great moment of letting go. It doesn't mean that there's no place for effort. There's a great place for effort. There's a great place of, through effort, of making the effort to form an intimate connection with this moment. The effort to be awake. The effort to be present in the unconditional, in an open, in a welcoming, in a generous way with whatever appears in this moment. That takes an extraordinary effort. That when that intimacy of connection is never born in the lethargic mind, in the spacey mind. It takes effort to have that intimacy of connection. But not the effort to get rid of anything. And not the effort to become anything. It is worth really learning in the story of Siddhartha's meeting with Mara that in that last encounter that the Siddhartha did not call forth his weapons of overcoming, of transcending, of denying or negating. But his response was stillness and a simple touching of the earth. That is our authority. That is the symbol of our trust. That is our sanctuary. It is not so much that we practice meditation, but rather that we learn how to be present in the process of meditation. It's not so much of having a goal or an agenda of where we want to go, but of trusting then in just being present in this moment, in just attending to this moment, that this awareness, this natural radiance of consciousness will find its own way to shine. This natural radiance of consciousness, this awareness and this wakefulness will find its own way to reveal itself to us. And our effort is just to be present, to be here, to be with what is. This is all that we can do, all that we need to do, and all that we have to do. It takes an extraordinary energy to really bear in mind that paradox that although there may not, never be a special event, a neon light in sight, at the same time, Every time we sit and every time we walk, we really sit and we really walk beneath our own Bodhi tree. Because every time we sit and every time we walk, that sitting and that walking offers to us the opportunity to be awake, invites us to be awake, and welcomes our wakefulness. And as we avail ourselves of that opportunity, we also experience the richness of that wakefulness. May all beings be free from conflict. May all beings be free from grasping.
our beings live with an open heart. If we have just a couple of minutes, quietly together, and then we'll have a breath. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.